Well, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. As we've been working through Philippians uh, this uh, summer, um, we've been trying to go approximately uh, passage by passage, although tonight um, we are a bit accidentally uh, skipping ahead to chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Uh, We're going to need to, and Lord willing, we will return to uh, the great Christ hymn of verses 5 to 11, which describes how Jesus left heaven and didn't hold on to it as a thing to be grasped, but he left his place of honor and glory and took to himself a human body and became a true human being, adding humanity to his divinity without ceasing to be God. And how he humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on a cross, and therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Now that text awaits uh, maybe five or six good sermons, uh, which we will return to. Our text is the following verses. How do we respond to that? Uh, How do we respond to this great Christ and the Father who delights in the obedience of his Son? It's it's because of the obedience of Jesus, God exalted him to the highest place. How do we respond to a Father who exalts his Son? And the Bible says we should kneel and we should bow and we should worship. And in our text tonight, we should obey. And obey, friends, is not a four-letter word. And I want you to think about that with me tonight. Uh, From Philippians chapter 2, God's call on Christians to obey. This is God's word. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Amen. This is the word of God. May he write it on our hearts tonight. Well, why do I say that obey is not a four-letter word? Perhaps because it is, I think, the universal trait of fallen humanity to have a love-hate relationship with the very idea of obedience, let alone the practice of it, right? On the one hand, we hate it. Uh, Consider this from Sir Ian McKellen of, of, of Gandalf fame, of Lord of the Rings. He was reflecting on Tolkien's world of the Lord of the Rings, and he said, what I like about hobbits and wizards was that it was the perfect community because it didn't have a church. There's no God in Lord of the Rings. There's no Pope, no Bishop, no Credo, nobody telling you what to do. Tolkien's a Catholic writer, so they look for those analogies, says uh, Ian McKellen. But Gandalf just says, we all have to do what we can do in the time that we've got. That's the closest thing you get to a belief system. Now that's... That's Gandalf, as it were, his perspective on Tolkien, which I think if you look behind it, he's absolutely missed the worldview of 
Tolkien. Uh, he's missed the underlying divine providence that weaves its way through the whole story. But, but did you catch for our purposes what he said? Did you hear him say, nobody telling you what to do? Now, if you're at all like me, you like the sound of that on various days of the week. We like being authority to ourselves. We like telling ourselves what to do. Isn't that interesting? We actually, we love and hate authority at the same time. We love authority as long as we get to be an authority to ourselves, and we love obedience as long as we get to obey ourselves. Obey your thirst, they tell us, right? Which is another way of saying, frankly, that we really love ourselves. We also really do love the idea of obedience, of obedience to God and to his authority in this respect, uh, that we naturally tend to think we're more obedient than others, and so we sometimes flatter ourselves that God will be, oh, near obligated to bless us because of our obedience. So obedience then is okay, just as long as it's enough to guarantee my acceptance and blessing from God, and so I'm secure, well then great. God's authority is fine, as long as he rewards me with what I so richly deserve. Now, all of that, friends, is the opposite of the gospel. Because my obedience is not a ladder which I climb to get into heaven or to attain blessing. It is only the obedience of Jesus for me who by his obedience satisfied all the requirements of God's law, who by his obedience, even to the point of death, suffered what a broken law requires, it is only by that obedience that I am secured pardon and acceptance with God. And so, so the gospel, friends, is not what is being preached in verses 12 through 13 in the sense of this. The gospel is in 5 to 11. Why did Jesus come? To obey. To obey the Father. To do all the Father required so that you and I could stand perfect and complete and righteous in God's eyes based on the record of Jesus' righteousness for us, and not based on the record of our own righteousness. And that is a beautiful message of good news and great joy. It ought to relieve you and free you. You can stand right with God right now because of Jesus. What's the hardest thing about Christianity? You. You know the hardest thing about Christianity for me? is me. You know, I've, I've lived since I became a Christian in Mayfield Village, Ohio, Cincinnati, Ohio, when I was at the University of Cincinnati, then Oxford, Ohio to go to Miami University, then back to Cincinnati for three years, then Jackson, Mississippi for seven years, now nine years in Northwest Arkansas. You know the hardest thing about being a Christian in all those places? Me. Me, my sin, my struggle, my temptations, my unkindness, my impatience, my uh, lack of gratitude and goodness and gentleness and faithfulness and self-control, my being absorbed with me and self-interested in me. I'm not Christ-like, and Christ-likeness is what God wants for me. Now look, where do you turn if you want to be Christ-like, if you want to be God-like, as it were? Well, other religions will tell you, you, 
Number one, there's really nothing wrong with you. There's really nothing wrong with you, and so what you really just need is to be sort of given some more information in order to figure that out and then go do it. Or other religions will say to you, there is something wrong with you, and what you need to do is fix yourself, and here's how to go fix you. Do these five things or these ten things. But Christianity comes along to you and says, there is something wrong with you. You're not Christ-like. And you cannot fix yourself. You need a savior. You need a master. You need God to be God to you, not just to forgive you, but even to change you. And so this text is about change. It's about what we might call sanctification, the process of being made more Christ-like. Because you and I were made for that, friends. You, you You and I all the way back to the garden of God in the garden of luxury with Adam and Eve, we were made in the image of God. You were were made for glory. And the fall has sunk us and plunged us into ruin such that the image of God in us, though it exists, is marred and we do not represent him on the earth as we were designed to do. We're bent. We're twisted. We're not beautiful the way that we were meant to be. God is determined to restore in you his image, to make you again what you were designed to be, like Jesus himself. And so it involves him working and you working out your salvation. That's what the Apostle Paul means by calling them to obedience. And so I want you to think about the activity and the appeal and the ability with regard to obedience. Those three things tonight. In the first place, notice the activity of obeying. Paul says, end of verse 12, work out your own salvation. You know, there are a lot of people who will tell you that uh, we shouldn't talk about obedience in the Christian life because to talk about obedience is to misunderstand grace. They'll say, if you talk about obedience, you're a legalist. You just want people to do things. The Apostle Paul is no legalist, and he says he wants you to do something. He wants you to work out your salvation. He, he's, he's saying you are, he says to them, continue to obey just as you have been. That's what I want to see in your life. Work out your salvation. So if you get the heebie-jeebies, as my pastor once put it, about the Bible talking about Christians obeying, about the Bible talking about Christians doing what God commands, if you've got the logic at heart that says, I've been accepted by God based on what Jesus did, so it doesn't matter what I do at all, then you have not yet understood what God has given to you in Christ and desires for you in the gospel. It matters what we do. Not because we attain that which we have not been given, but because we express the new life that we have. A great picture of this is the picture of a garden, maybe not in 105 degree heat over months on end, as all of ours wilt. This illustration may be uh, counterproductive, but imagine someone gives you a healthy garden, a garden freshly planted with seeds already sown. Is that grace? Absolutely. They give it to you. 
Would anything continue to grow? Well, probably. But there's going to be a lot of work involved. You're going to have to weed it. You're going to have to pull out the bad stuff and prune off the dying stuff. You're going to have to chop out things that don't belong there while you water it and fertilize it and make sure it gets sunlight in order to grow. And when the harvest comes and it bears fruit, are you going to turn around and look at that garden and say, I made that food grow? (laughs) No. You're going to give thanks to God who made the food grow because you can't make food grow. You can work to keep out the hindrances. You can work to nurture it. But God makes it grow. And so it is with us in the Christian life, right? God gives you tools to encourage the good. He gives you worship. He gives you the sacraments. He gives you the Lord's Supper. He gives you prayer. He gives you the Holy Spirit. And we are to uh, stir up the graces of the Spirit. We are to say yes to the Holy Spirit. We are to feed ourselves on the good news of the gospel to encourage the growth. And he gives us tools, does he not, friends? To fight the battle against the weeds. He tells us to flee immorality. He tells us to be watchful and to fight sin. He tells us to say no to things that hinder you. Say no to the enticements of the world, the lusts of the flesh, the deceitfulness of riches, because they choke out life. You and I are to do all these things, but what brings the growth? God. God causes the growth. So we are to express salvation and to work out our salvation and to nurture it and to uh, say no to the things that hinder it. Not because we earn it, but because it is a garden in which we have been planted, as it were, and that has been planted in us. Now, friends, the obedience of Jesus did all that's required for you to be free of your sin, pardoned by God, accepted by God. And it is on the basis of the obedience of Jesus and life in him that you and I are to grow. And so there is activity required. You and I cannot just sit back passive. But if you don't understand on the front end how to distinguish but keep together justification and sanctification, if you can't distinguish a right standing with God by grace through the work of Christ and the activity of becoming Christ-like, if you can't distinguish those yet keep them together, you will on the one hand despair because sanctification, the process of becoming Christ-like confronts you with all the ways that you are not what you should be. And it will drive you to despair if you think every day you are up and down, in and out with God, loved and not loved, safe and not safe, based upon your performance. But you will, if that's not your problem, you'll tend to deny your sin because you can't look it square in the face and be honest and say it's really as bad as it is and it's probably worse than I think. If you continue to think God loves you and accepts you based on your sanctification and progress in Christ-likeness. Now there are dangers here, friends, of pulling those two things apart and saying you can be forgiven and not give a rip about walking with God. That is not true. But if you think your walking with God establishes your forgiveness with God, you're in big trouble too.
You've got to distinguish them, but keep them together. So Paul calls you to activity, to obey. And he makes a variety of appeals here. He says this is a, this is a loving obedience. Notice how he begins. I think there's tremendous wisdom here for us when he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed. Now, continue in obedience. You see, you see how Paul is doing with them? He's not mad at them. He, he's, he's not angry at them, though this is a church which is evidently proud and self-interested, so he had rebuked them for it. A church in which in chapter 4 we see the, the two women um, who are um, in conflict with one another and want to agree together. It's a church with various problems. And Paul's not mad at them. He's not cool towards them. He loves them. He calls them his beloved. They are already beloved. You've got to be very careful on this. Paul is not saying, clean up, do what I say, and you will be restored to my love. It is so dangerous to believe that for ourselves or to believe that as we minister to others, friends. I, I spent some time uh, with Dr. Paul Koistra, who is the, 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 the national coordinator of Mission to the World, our, our international missions agency of our denomination. He said when he was a kid, he heard a Sunday school teacher say, God loves good little boys. And he said... That one phrase stuck with him a long time and almost as an adult made him neurotic. He says he almost lost his mind over that one phrase. Do you, do you know why? Isn't it obvious? Because Dr. Koister knew he wasn't a good little boy. Friends, God doesn't love good little boys. There are none. He loves the wicked. He loves the rebellious. He loves the vile, the filthy, the perverse. While you are yet all those things, Christ died for you. And God justifies the ungodly who are at that moment ungodly. And he justifies, pardons, accepts, and renews. And begins a process of change. All those things together. Listen, this is so, I think, helpful for all pastors and teachers, for parents too. Are we communicating that we love the people that we're hoping to see change? Are we communicating, stop doing this or we won't love you? Or we love you and we don't want you to destroy yourself and others by how you're living. And so because we love you, we long for you to change and be changed. He's so tender with them. Dear beloved, he says, obey. He wants us to respond to a tender God who makes that call on us, who loves us and calls us to love in return. It's also a genuine obedience he calls for, he appeals to. He reminds them, doesn't he, that they have been obedient. In other words, he's, he's, he's not calling them to something new, to something totally and wholly out of character with who they are. He's not inviting, as it were, so-called Christians to, for the first time, start obeying. 
Oh, you're a Christian. You've been given new life. You've been forgiven, but you, it hasn't changed your life a bit in any way. You've been walking away from God ever since. He doesn't say, well, you just need to turn around and start obeying. He, he's talking to people whom he assumes and knows because he knows them have been people who have already been turned and have begun to walk in obedience because those two things, salvation, forgiveness, and obedience, go together in the Christian life. There's no such thing as a pardoned person who hasn't begun to be obedient. Now, there are degrees of obedience. There are fluctuations, ups and downs, stumbles and falls. But he says to them, as you have obeyed, now, now, now that I'm gone, much more obey. In other words, you obeyed when I was around. And I believe that was genuine and sincere, but it may have been a temptation for some of you to be obedient because I was around. And now in my absence, prove yourself. Demonstrate you're not a man pleaser who was only in this thing because of the people around you and not in it because of God. So he wants to see a genuine and sincere obedience all the more in my absence, he says to them. And he wants a trembling obedience. He wants a loving, a genuine, and a trembling obedience. He says, do this with fear and trembling. As opposed, we might say on the one hand, to sort of being flippant, lax, and casual. Nonchalant, and oh well, no big deal. I mean, what does it really matter anyway? We're all forgiven, so who cares? He wants you to have awe. And respect for God. Not, I think here, not the kind of fear that is the fear, as many have said, of, of the slave who cringes before his master who's a cruel tyrant and who is only going to shape up to avoid the whip. But the, and not the fear, we might say, of the criminal who, who stands before the judge in the court of law and, and fears punishment and condemnation. But the filial, family affection and respect of a true child before the most loving of fathers who fears not so much what he might do to us for our disobedience but just that out of love, we fear the hurt and grief we might even do to him by our disobedience. God sees it all. God knows it all. There's nothing hidden from his sight. He knows all the secret places of your life. And he loved you and gave his son for you. And you've come to love him, have you not? Then you desire to not grieve the Holy Spirit who is in you. So he says, obey with, with fear and trembling, remembering your weakness, remembering your temptations to sin, your propensity to stumble, how easily you can be distracted. And he says, keeping all those things in mind, obey. It, it ought to be the prayer of our hearts. And I'm convicted of how infrequently it is in my own life. What Jesus taught us to pray when the disciples said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he said, all right, here's how you pray. Pray, lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from evil. 
Why do you pray that prayer? Except that you know you're so easily fooled and you so quickly stumble. And there ought to be a trembling within us to sin and rebel, to break our Father's heart. And so he calls for a a trembling obedience. But, But all of this is out of reach. I mean, how do you do this? When, if you sit here knowing yourself well enough, you know that you don't and can't all the time and perfectly. You're just not Christ-like. And this is where he says to you, with great encouragement, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. How? Why? For it is God who works in you, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. What is the relationship here between God's sovereign power at work in you and your responsible activity of obedience. I find this illustration helpful. If you're four-wheeling on on a path in the woods after a storm and you come out across a, a, a fallen tree across that path, a giant tree, you can't get around it because of the woods on either side. You can't get over it because it's so fat. It's got to be moved. Now, maybe the illustration doesn't hold here, but imagine how you might move that. You might say to yourself, I'll do it. You might say to yourself, let's let God do it. You might say to yourself, God and I will do it together. But what would that look like? Let me just imagine that 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 fallen tree is is sin, is unchristlikeness in your life. Or positively, it's some responsible duty that you have, say, to pray or read your Bible. And it seems like an obstacle that you cannot overcome. You have an option. Some people would say one of those options is this. Just let God do it. Really, the the way you progress in the Christian life is simply to surrender all, sit back, and let God work it out. He'll show up eventually and get something done around here. It encourages passivity on our part. Sort of the let go, let God do it, he'll handle it, I'll just wait for him to show up and read my Bible for me. The other alternative would be this. I'll do it. You know, it's all up to me after all anyway. I've got to pull myself up by my bootstraps. I've got to sort of get things done around here. I just need to stop sinning. I just need to start praying. I just need to quit lusting. I just need to start reading my Bible. I just need to make a decision and go for it. And I'll move that tree out of my way. Others would say, no, 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 the way you do it is this. You gotta, it's you and God together, right? So you do your part and God does his part. Oh, granted, God's going to get on one side of that tree and he's going to move like 90, 95% of it. You get on the other side of that tree and you move 5 or 10%, but you do your best and God will do his best. The hardest part will be done by God. Eh, the little bit will be done by you. At the end of the day, that is a form of self-salvation. It is a form of reliance on self. It's just wiping out how much you have to handle in life. And it's saying, well, there's a lot of things I can't handle, but the part I have to handle, I'm still on my own for that part. Now, the the better way to look at things, I think, is this. The Christian position, the Philippians 2 position is this. I am responsible to do what I am unable to do. 
unless God is at work in me and through me. And so I walk up to that log and I lift that log, but I do so in dependence upon God who like hand in glove, as it were, accomplishes by his power what I am weak to accomplish myself. So I go right at it. I tackle it, but I do it to see the display of God's power at work in my life, not in order to get God's power at work in my life. I do it with a a sense of my inability, my weakness, and His strength. And so I am in constant need. I am in constant dependence. We are not, friends, the little engine that could. Remember that story? About the the sweet boys and girls on the other side of the mountain who didn't have their clowns and toys and cakes and goodies and, and they were stuck because the engine broke down on the other side of the mountain and so along the tracks came the mighty freight train and, and they appealed to the freight train, please freight train, won't you take our clowns and toys and cookies and goodies over the mountain to the little boys and the freight train said, no, you know, that's too small a task for me kind of thing. And then the passenger train comes by. No, people are more important than toys and goodies. And then this weak little train comes by, and they say, can you do this? And the little train says, oh, yeah, maybe so. So they hook it up, and the little train starts out rolling down the flat, and as it gets to the mountain, it begins to climb, and it says, I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And it gets to the top of the plateau and it crosses over and it descends down into the mountain to give all those goodies to the little toys who are so, to, to the little children who are so needy. And as it descends down that mountain, it says to itself, I thought I could. 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 I think I can. I thought I could. Is not the Christian life in any way, shape, or form. That is not how God expects you to do any single thing that God has called you to do. Whether dying to sin or living for righteousness. You are not supposed to be the little engine that could. You are the engine that can't. Every, every action has two things. It has the will... And the activity itself, friends. And either can trip us up. Alec Motier said it this way. Either, either we cannot bring ourselves to choose what we know to be right. Or else, having chosen it, we fail to do it. Sin has corrupted both the power to choose and the power to accomplish. And the Apostle Paul says, I know that. And the gospel is so good. God is at work in you both to will and to work, to work on the one hand, to do it. Why did you think you could do it on your own? You don't have everything under control. You can't do anything on your own. Oh, listen, I know, I know that you, you can make all kinds of choices and decisions all on your own. You can decide to get up for work or sleep in. You can decide whether you're going to eat pizza or salad for lunch. I get it. But you can't decide that you're going to run 100 meters in seven seconds flat because nobody does. Nobody ever has. You can't decide, though you may want to, that you're going to leap tall buildings with a single bound. You may want to, but you don't have the ability. You're at liberty. Nobody's stopping you. Have at it. But you're incapable. 
And the Apostle Paul says to you, things are like that in spiritual life too. You have lost your ability of will to do what needs to be done. And only by the Spirit of God can you accomplish what needs to be done. You are like someone standing on the edge of a muddy pit with slippery sides. And as long as you're on the edge, you've got free will, as it were. You can either stay on the bank or you can jump in. But if you decide to jump in, then your free will is lost as far as getting out of the pit is concerned. You have free will to walk around at the bottom or sit down, lay down to go to sleep, or bide your time. You have free will to try to scramble up the other side or free will to accept your predicament philosophically. You have free will to cry for help or be silent, to be angry or not. But you don't have free will to get up on the edge of that muddy pit again because you lost it. Someone's got to reach down in there and pluck you out. Just as when Adam and Eve on the edge of that pit said no to their father, plunged themselves into that pit and lost the ability to walk with him. So God comes and he sends his savior, his son, to seek and to save the lost, to bring you out of the miry pit, and to enable you to walk with him. But you need more than just ability, because look, there are all kinds of things you know you should be doing. And you sense that you could, you could with God, do them. But your heart just says, I just don't really want to do that. I, I'm, I'm unwilling to do what I know that I should do. And Paul says, I've got to answer for that too, because it's God who works in you both to will and to do. Your prayer needs to be, Lord, I'm willing to be made willing because I'm not willing right now. Though it's right, though it would be good for me, though it would be for your glory. That is not where I am. But God can make you willing. Are you willing to be made willing? That's the work of the Spirit of God too. Abide in me and I in you, Jesus said, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, Jesus says, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, For apart from me, you can do nothing. There's a great little saying that that I think is helpful with regard to this matter of obedience, friends, that every Christian can say with confidence, and it goes like this. I didn't, but Jesus did. And I am in him, and he is in me. I can't. But Jesus can, and I am in him, and he is in me. I don't want to, but Jesus wants to, and I am in him, and he is in me. And the Lord bless his word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we bow before you and ask that you would open our eyes, that we would see Jesus, 
that you would encourage our hearts to lean on Jesus, to not be afraid of weakness, failure on our part, and to look to you for hope and strength on your part. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and close in song singing Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saved a Wretch Like Me. It is in your hymn books. Arthur, what? what? Uh, number 402. Okay.